Well, how do we preserve the goodness of this message that is the Sermon on the Mount, this message that's explosively countercultural, that's uh, revolutionary? How do we preserve it in a way that this mandate might carry influence today? Well, this week, as you probably know, another national prayer breakfast has taken place, and many journalists have questioned the the legitimacy of doing such a thing today, uh, weaving together prayer and politics, because the danger is that we cultivate a a partisan uh, faith. And yet, it's so often uh, at these prayer breakfasts that the Sermon of the Mount is quoted, whether it's love your enemies or be the light of the world, be the salt of the earth. How do we talk about these things without trivializing them, without politicizing them? It's a challenge, isn't it? And then the metaphors themselves of salt and light are are very tricky. Like any metaphors, how do you um, explain them in a way that doesn't overburden them? It's always hard to know how to use metaphors in a way that you don't overstretch them. Salt means get involved in the world, dissipate yourself so that you become invisible but bring out the flavor. But to be the light of the world means to be visible, to shine uh, all over the world. So what in our lives should be visible and what in our lives should be invisible? How do we discern the difference? Also, Jesus talks about how salt should not lose Uh, It's flavor and it's savor, but is the opposite true? Can you have too much salt in the world so that things are ruined, just like when you mistake your salt and your sugar when you're baking and a cake can be ruined? So how do we renovate these images in in a healthy way, in a sensible way that we preserve the goodness, the essence of what's going on? Well, I think the first step is to think about how these metaphors came into being, that they happened during this this wonderful Sermon on the Mount. Up until now, the spiritual elite were, were the rich, the educated, the successful, the people in the pews that when you looked at them, you thought their lives are together. They're all sewn up well. They almost seem too good to live in this world. They're otherworldly. But but Jesus turned the idea of blessedness right upside down. He revolutionized it by saying that the life of blessedness is not tied into your financial stability or to your good health or to your love life or even to your self-actualization. But but Jesus said, blessed are you when you're broken. Blessed are you when when you're struggling to get out of bed in the morning and find purpose in life. Blessed are you when the, the tears are streaming down your face and you're mourning and weeping for the life of the world. Blessed are you when you choose to take the difficult road, the narrow road, of trying to bring peace, as Jean Vanier talked about, the little trickle of peacemakers. 
all these things so countercultural. And the only one who embodied all these qualities was Jesus himself. And so when the Holy Spirit gives us life into our being, we're taking on that nature of Jesus. We're taking on his light, his salt. And so Jesus was saying to us today in the same way that he said to the disciples on that day, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Do you see how he's not saying you're becoming salt? If you tweak a few things in your behavior, you will be like this. Nor does he say you will become the light if you decide to shine and do something. No, he's saying you've already got these qualities because of the new birth, by God's transforming grace. You see, the scribes and Pharisees had been trying to do it by being good, by being like the salt of the earth, by keeping up with the rules of faith. But Jesus was modeling a different way where we could become salt from the inside out by this inner transformation. And Jesus was already embodying all of these things by reaching out to the margins, the unwanted, those who'd been broken by society. Jesus was going to be the light of the world on the hill by hanging on a cross. So all these things show the upside down nature of the kingdom that we're a part of. And so our starting place for recovering our saltiness is simply to remember this is not something we do to ourselves. It's already been done to us. We are salt because of God's work in our lives. And that's good news today. We're dependent on his grace. I don't know if you've seen the 1993 movie Shadowlands, the story of the later part of C.S. Lewis's life, his journey with his wife Joy through, through cancer. And uh, there's a scene where Joy has been going through treatment and it seems that she's recovering really well. Um, she appears to be getting better. She's able to return to her normal life and do things she hadn't been able to do before. And Lewis is in college. He's standing just outside a worship service and one of his friends comes up to talk to him and asks how Joy has been doing. And he says she's been doing really well. And the friend replies, well, this is great news. The Lord has been answering your prayer. And C.S. Lewis replies, but Harry, that's not why I pray. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me, whether I'm waking or whether I'm sleeping. I can't help myself. That's why I pray. And the same is true for us. We're, we're salt. We can't help but worship. God elicits our worship because he made us to be like him. And so we are salt. We need to remember the power of who we are in Christ. 
Larry Hurtado writes about the early centuries of the early church, and he, he recently wrote about why people became Christians in those early days, because really they had nothing to gain in their society. It wasn't going to advance their cause. It wasn't going to make them more successful. There was no social benefit for becoming a Christian. And Hurtado came to the conclusion that what was attractive was this communion with God. That was the only thing, communion with God, being like God, a love relationship with God through the free gift of eternal life, total, free, unconditional forgiveness, this fresh start. That's what it means to be salt, to have our lives cleansed out. We are salt. But the, the second part of that sentence reminds us that there's a function that we play in this world. You are salt, not of heaven, but you are salt of the earth. We're, we're to have a function here on earth. That's the power um, of slow preservation. If you think about salt, one, one of the ancient functions was to put it on the meat long before there were freezers or refrigerators to, to stop it decaying. And Bonhoeffer said disciples of Christ should function in this way in society. He said, we're the highest good without which the world cannot live. Now that's a big claim for tiny particles of salt. We're the highest good without which the world cannot live. Tim Keller tells the story of how a US, US history professor used to demonstrate this. He said he used to get his students to do a thinking process, a challenge with them. He said, imagine it's late at night and you see an old lady out in the streets and she's carrying this purse and it's laden, laden with, with jewels. Uh, and there's no way this little old lady could resist uh, your, your strength. And also in this country, there's not any rules against stealing. So this is yours for the taking. What would you do? Would you go and steal the jewels? Yes or no? And all the students in the class would say no. But the, the professor always wanted to push a little bit further and ask, well, why did you say no, I'm not going to steal. And he says, here are three options. A, you don't do it because to take money from a weak person would mean that you are now the weak person. Or B, you don't take the money because you think what this would mean for the woman, the loss of money, what's at stake for her. Or C, some other reason. And inevitably, all the students in the history class would choose B, that these people were thinking of the other. What's at stake for this woman? And the professor went on to say, this proves that you've been shaped by the soil of Christianity. Whether you're a Christian or not today, you've been shaped by this soil, the salt of the earth, because the roots of Western society used to be based on the Anglo-Saxon honor-shame culture of A, the weak and the strong, until Christianity came in and subtly changed the, the soil through the ethics of love. 
And over the years, the shame on our culture was gradually being displaced by this culture of love and grace. And so our challenge today is to keep being this salt in our society through meaningful acts of love, preserving the goodness. And yet we're small, aren't we? We're small particles of salt. And yet this is what Jesus used over and over again. He used little things to produce inordinately big results. Think of the the loaves and the fish uh, to feed the thousands. Think of the small widow's coin to talk about how God treasured little things. Think about the tiny bit of yeast that was put in a dough and seeped right through it to create the rise. And so whenever you feel discouraged that your life and witness is so small that you worry, am I making a difference today in this society? Think of how God blesses the small and can use it for inordinate blessing. One practice I love to do Uh, is simply to walk through a house and pray blessing on it. To pray that God's presence, like yeast in a dough or salt worked through the bread, will, will fill the place, that God's presence will fill this place with his goodness. Tish Warren, in her book, Liturgy for the Ordinary, talks about how her priest friend Peter um, blessed houses as well. And she writes, he told me he's noticed that everyone starts paying closer attention when they cried into the bathroom to bless it. Because it's not a thing you do, sure it's not. You cried into a bathroom to pray with a bunch of friends. But, but he's noticed that people tend to let, lean in and start listening more carefully, wondering What does it mean to invoke God's presence in this most humble, tiniest, it's probably the tiniest room in your house? Uh, And what he does is he anoints the bathroom mirror with oil and prays that when people look into it, they would see themselves as who they are, the beloved of Christ. He prays that they would not relate to their bodies with the categories that the world gives them, but instead, according to the truth of who they are in Christ. And we all know how easy it is to look in the mirror and take stock of all that we feel is lacking or wrong about who we are. The challenge is to learn to delight in the body God made for us, that God loves And Peter says that when he prays over the bathroom mirror, he has noticed in the mirror behind him fathers beginning to cry, fathers of young girls, because they they long for their daughters to see themselves as God sees them. And for the reflections in the bathroom mirror to be a reflection of their belovedness, of their freedom, of the wonder of being in Christ. Do you see how praying into those small places, praying small prayer particles of blessing in a home can have such a huge influence on our young people and how they grow up in this society? 
the power of the small if it's attached to faith in Christ. The problem you might be saying is, ah, but even with all these things, Karen, even in our culture, even though we know deep within our society there are deep traces of Christian legacy, even though we know our society has tasted the salt of God's goodness, today it feels like uh, we're in danger of losing the flavor, the, the distinctiveness of our faith. Because yes, we believe in justice for all people. Yes, we believe in the alleviation of suffering. Yes, we believe in caring for the earth tenderly. But somehow, all these things get mingled in with enlightenment so that they only function if we get to define their meaning. Only if we can get to, to make the right decisions. And the problem today is everyone wants to define what salt is and how it should be used in our culture. And the very idea of what is normative, um, of having norms that, that straddle all groups, all cultures, all people, seems so unattainable. So, so how can we be salt of the earth when the idea of self-actualization, self-assertion are so strong and whilst many people in our society agree with the values of Christianity, we can't tell them what to do. What do we do then? How do we be salt? Well, when Bonhoeffer wrote his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he was aware of these kind of problems too. He was aware of cheap grace. And he was had this growing concern that political partisanship was a trophy in this shared sense of what is right, of what is just, and also what is wrong. He knew that there wasn't this broad-based agreement about justice across partisan allegiances. And in The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote that the only way to preserve salt and light and make it visible in society. It is through the lens of the cross. He writes, the cross is this strange light which illuminates the good works of the disciples. If these good works were just this galaxy of human virtues, we, we should glory then in disciples, but not in God. But it's by seeing the cross and the community beneath it that we can come to believe in God. Because the cross is the answer to the world's problems. The cross is where things get turned upside down. That place of despair is turned into hope again. That place of death is turned into life again. That's where we get our hope. When we see love that's been lost and given away, reclaimed and renovated. When he was 40 years old, the, the renowned Bohemian novelist Kafka, Franz Kafka, who never married, never had children, he was strolling through a park in Berlin and he saw uh, this young girl from the corner of her eye crying because she'd lost her favorite doll. Uh, and so she and Kafka spent time going round the park trying to retrieve the doll, but they couldn't find 
the doll. And so Kafka said, meet me here in the park at the same time the next day, and we'll look for it all over again. And the next day, when they kept looking and still hadn't found the doll, Kafka placed in the girl's hand a letter that was written by the doll. And it said, please do not cry. I've gone on a trip to see the world. I'm going to write to you about my adventures. And this began a story that continued to the end of Kafka's life. They would meet in the park. Kafka would read aloud adventures and conversations about the doll and where she'd been, all of which the girl found enchanting. And finally, Kafka read her a letter of the story that had brought the doll all over the world and eventually back to Berlin. And he gave her a new doll that he had purchased. And the girl said, this doll doesn't look like my old doll. And Kafka handed her another letter that explained from the doll's perspective, my trip has changed me. So the girl hugged the new doll and took it home. And a year later, Kafka died. But many years later, this girl grew up uh, and she, she found in the tiny unnoticed crevice in the doll another letter. And, and this tiny letter signed by Kafka said, everything you love is likely to be lost, but in the end, love will return in a different way. And that's the message of the cross. A love that is lost, but that will return to us even more glorious. And so if you want to be salt and light in the world, you need to think about the cross. The, these two pieces of wood that would have been so invisible to human eyes, but all of a sudden become visible and significant because of the love that was broken open there. That, that Jesus chose to hang in a place of injustice where all the norms of what should have been right were stripped away. And to quote Lewis Meads, Jesus made everything all right in the place where everything was all wrong. And that's why we're Christians Today, whenever we feel a threat of becoming invisible in this world, we go to the cross and think about how Jesus said to the people in front of him, I forgive you. In a culture that's consumeristic and self-actualizing, the most counter-cultural act we can do is go back to the cross and consider the love that was led out there. We are the salt. We're able to change the narrative because our faith transcends cultures and political parties and social groups. And how do I know this? Because each and every Sunday morning when I look out at the people who are gathered here, these group of people, you wouldn't be drawn together for any other reason than Jesus is in your life. That's how we know we have a faith that transcends cultures. So how do we preserve the goodness of the Sermon on the Mount? 
Well, we can't preserve it by ourselves because then we're like Lot's wife, holding on to a sense of ourselves, looking back at what we think we're missing and then turning into a pillar of salt. We can't preserve goodness by trying to preserve ourselves or the status quo. Salt is meant to be dispersed. You find your life by dispersing it, by giving it away, by putting it out there. So as you leave this place and go out into this week, what is your spiritual discipline going to be of being salt of the earth? For some of you, it might mean carrying a tiny sachet of salt in your pocket as a reminder of how something so small can break out the flavor in others. And as you go, you are praying prayers of blessing in the houses that you enter, in the rooms that you're working in, even in the bathrooms you visit. For some of you, it might simply be the realization you are salt. You're not working hard to become salt, but in this place and in this moment, in this brokenness, in this despair, you are salt. You're already living in that sweet communion with God. And finally, for some of you, you may have come here today thinking about relationships that have been lost. Maybe people in your family believe in different value systems and you're struggling. How do I be salt? Or maybe you're in a place where life feels cruelly unjust. There are structures that are holding you back and holding you down. Well, that's why we go to the cross, because God was prepared to lose himself in love so that resurrection could happen. And if we give ourselves fully to the way of the cross, resurrection will come. It will come. There'll be a day when the light will dawn. So come to him. You're here to be salt and light, to bring out God flavors, God colors in this world. So shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. And by opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. You are salt. You are light. Be visible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.